This is the Shenandoah Down Under podcast. In the final days of the American Civil War, the CSS Shenandoah set out on an epic year-long secret mission. Join your Australian hosts, Robert Love and Michael O'Brien, as they follow the last Confederate cruiser on its quest to find and sink the Yankee whaling fleet, wherever on the high sea they may find them. And hello, and this is Shenandoah Down Under, or Confederate Pirates Save the Whales, with the Robin Mob. I'm Rob. And I'm Mob. Good morning. Oh, I normally say a Robert, that's Robert Love and Michael O'Brien, but uh, but I skipped it this time. W- will we ever get it right? We, we got it right last week, I think. We got it right perfectly. Well, we're, I think this is, what, episode 17? I, I think actually it's episode 18. Episode 18. Well, the journey continues. Yes. Eventually, probably by about episode 61, we'll get it right. We'll get it right. And then we'll become old and blasé and it'll just become, you know, the, the, the frizz on of, will we get our own in, in introduction right? We'll, we'll just we'll just fade away. Except by then the Shenandoah will have uh, made its journey around the world. Yes, and we'll then have to move on to our next podcast. Anyway, anyway talking about Shenandoah making its journey around the world, um, where are we now, Michael, in 1865 and 2015? Uh, on Tuesday, February the 17th, 2015, we're here in Melbourne, Australia. If we go back to uh, February the 17th, 1865, which possibly wasn't a Tuesday, uh, <laughs> The Shenandoah is still in Melbourne, just. Still in Melbourne, just. And what an exciting week. Um, our last um, last episode uh, took the crew of the Shenandoah up to February the 10th, uh, 1865, where they had just been to a ball, which uh, Michael and the myself... Buccaneers Ball in Ballarat. How's that for, for alliteration? The Buccaneers Ball in, in Ballarat, yes. So they probably... Picked it for that particular alliter- alliteration, and, and not at all to try and imply well, they could that. Call it the Pirates Party, but <laughs> they may have thought that was a political party. Now, now, if they'd call it the Pirates Party, that would be such a wonderfully steampunk thing to um, <laughs> to to regale in 2015. But I think that the, the Buccaneers Ball is uh, is nearly as good. But um, so last week uh, we went in great detail into the uh, the details of the Buccaneers Ball in, in large part because we'd just been to a to a reenactment of it, uh, which was fantastic. But back in Melbourne on February the ninth and tenth of eighteen sixty five, there were some very major developments that basically um, threatened to to scupper the whole the whole enterprise of the Shenandoah and could have led to absolute disaster. Now, um, Captain Waddell did not go up to Ballarat, although um, Craig's Royal Hotel announces him as having been one of its guests. So I think he was meant to go up to Ballarat. I think a, ro- a room was probably reserved uh, for him. <laughs> and they thought that was good enough, you know. And, uh, you know, so, um, again, with... Uh, some of the other famous guests at Craig's Royal Hotel. Um, but uh, Captain Waddell did not come up to Ballarat, and very possibly um, one of the reasons was that on February the 9th, um, up until that time, the Shenandoah had been out on the water. Um, when, when all the young ladies of Melbourne were visiting the Shenandoah, it was out in the water. But um, Oh, just before that, we, we had... Um 
the numbers that went were quite phenomenal, weren't they? Yes, yes. Well, we'll have to bring this up again because um, that last weekend we went to a, a, a one-day conference about the Shenandoah. Um, but uh, and uh, Dr. Angus Curry, uh, he's written one of our one of our best sources. Doing is these traditionally holding it up to the microphone again, and I'll, I'll, I'll riffle some pages. There you go, um, Dr. Angus Curry, who of course wrote the officers of the CSS Shenandoah, uh, gave a talk. Um, at that um, um, at that conference, and apparently seven thousand people um, came by train to Williamstown to either go and view the Shenandoah or to try to do so. And that, given that that was a um, that the city had one hundred and thirty thousand people in in those days, that was actually a larger percentage than turned out to to see the Beatles. Although I wanted to say at that point that that's not quite fair because um, the Shenandoah was an all-ages gig, whereas the Beatles did did rather appeal to teenagers. Um, but so it was just just an, an absolute massive response uh, from the from and, the people of Melbourne. And you had the uh, the various officers in their journals. I think they were excited about the reception to start with, but by that Sunday they were heartily sick of. Uh, visitors and showing them around and it stopped them doing the normal things that you had to do on a board a ship to keep it ship shape yes. it also meant that uh, getting on with things like reprovisioning and doing the necessary repairs were problematic as well well if you could imagine you know, it's like when, when you go to a, to a fast food restaurant and because it's open all hours if they want to mop the floor they basically have to, to mop around you well but imagine if, if they're 500 people in that McDonald's and the, the poor person still has to mop the floor. So yes, they, they would not have been able to holy stone the deck or, or practice their swearing or, or, or all the things that, that sailors have to do on a, on a regular basis. Um, and of course they had, um, grave problems with their, uh, with their propeller. Now I believe, Michael, you were, you were telling me off air that they, they sent a diver down. Yeah, a diver was sent down. Um, not sure if the diver had a diving helmet on or what? just held his nose. Well, it's interesting because the the, um, the SeaWorks exhibition a couple of weeks ago, um, the, uh, the SeaWorks Maritime Festival, did have a person in a diving helmet. But the problem is it's difficult to work out whether he was doing that to reenact the diver on the Shenandoah or just because divers' helmets are cool. Um, they so. are very cool. It, it was actually a specialist firm of engineers that sent the diver down, so it was obviously someone who knew what they were doing. Yes. And he came back up and he pretty much said the propeller was stuffed. And The, the, the technical Australian term. That, that yes. is a technical Australian term, yes. And uh, if it had happened in New Zealand, he probably would have said that the propeller was munted. But, uh... Oh, okay. Well, there you go. <laughs> and pretty much the only way they were going to be able to fix it would be to take the ship out and put it in a dry dock. Now, um, that had a, a couple of advantages, I think, for Waddell. Uh, first of those would be that um, he could get a propeller fixed, which was something that he, he very much needed to do. Because uh, I believe um, it, it's not just that the, if the propeller wasn't working um, that um, they couldn't get up steam. But also the propeller, if the propeller was actively broken, then it had the, the, the possibility of actively interfering with, 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 with the ship's travel. Or even if, if a bit of the hull broke off with the propeller, um, that could be very, very nasty indeed. So uh, one of the advantages for Waddell was that he could get this fixed. Um, the other was that once the ship was in dry dock, he would have a perfectly good excuse for not having um, hundreds and hundreds of people traipsing through it. 
because they would have to probably, you know, wear the equivalent of high vis helmets and uh, and sign onto a work site and uh, and all those sorts of things. In those days, you probably had to have like you know a cloth handkerchief tied around your neck. Or yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And and young ladies, of course, would not want to um, yeah be within earshot of uh, of, of dock workers. Um, so the the challenge with with that for the government in in the colony of Victoria is the dry dock was known as the government slip. Yes. Because it was actually owned by the Victorian government. And under the Articles of Neutrality, we're getting very, very close to supporting the enemy or supporting a, a enemy combatant. Yes. Um, and look, I think that... Um there must be some loopholes in the in, in the laws of neutrality to cover the fact that if, if the only dry dock in town oh, no, is, is I've, a, I've, I've got the loophole. That oh, was okay. a good one too. Okay. The the dry dock was owned by the government, but they had leased it to a private company. Oh, so it was a a, a, a government a, a, a PPP. Whatever, uh, yes, whatever a that public stands. private partnership. <laughs> So that was the uh, that was the legal manoeuvre they used to be able to get around the fact that the government was not actively supporting one side or the other when the British Empire, of course, was meant to be neutral in this conflict. So they were able to put the Shenandoah up onto the dry dock and famously the only known photograph of the mm. Shenandoah mm. was taken on that dry dock. Yes, uh, and... and- I, I just wish, look, while I'm very grateful to the photographer that, that um, uh, he took that photo, because it, it, it's, it's a very good photo, it shows the stern, it shows the, the lines of the hull, but couldn't he have just then got out on a boat and gone around and taken a photo from the front as well? And, and, and why he then didn't climb to the top of the mast and then take a picture from the crow's nest so that you know, people who wanted to make models 150 years later could, could make a good model? I'm, I'm, yeah. So well played, sir, but yeah, not, not very well played. So this, this government slip, as it was called, and I think that was a fairly unfortunate name for the later arguments. About yeah, for the later, for the later court case. The court case <laughs> Spoilers. <yes. laughs> um, that, that's located in Williamstown, yes. and it was very, very close to where we were uh, a couple of weeks ago for the Maritime Festival. Mm-hmm. Um, today, where the government slip is, there is a huge shipyard, and they're currently building another warship on there. It's the um, it's the the carrier that is being built for the Australian Navy. Oh uh, no, this isn't the heli carrier. Yes, is it, yeah. Uh, Oh, so the, the one down there is still being built because it looked to me like it was perfectly operational. Well, they'd actually sailed it there, but now it's going through its... Uh, oh, it's, it's, it's fitting out, yes. yes. So, so it's the equivalent of when the Shenandoah stole those bureaus and writing desks and, and beds from uh, from their first Yes, prize. I suspect the new uh, carrier has more flush toilets, though. Yes, yes. We would uh, hope. Hmm. Mm. Oh, we did discover at the conference also that the crew got one flush toilet. There were three for the officers and one for the crew. So that was that was forward thinking. Well, yeah, okay. So, so three for thirty officers and, and that full complement because the makers didn't realise that the, the Shenandoah would be undermanned. So um, one toilet for for ninety people and then three three toilets for the other thirty. Well, that that's. That's the way they roll back in those days. And I'm sure with, with um, current little levels of inequality, though, those, those, those days will be coming again. So the Shenandoah was put up onto this dry dock, which is uh, an arrangement, of course, where you, you float the ship in and then you pump all the water out so that the hull is completely exposed. 
And that was the way they were able to get at and uh, repair the propeller. Mm. And it was the disadvantage for Waddell, of course, was if your ship's in a dry dock, it's not going to go anywhere soon, is it? No, no. It's, it's going to take it, you know, at least a couple of days for them to, to pump the water back in. And also, it, it needs active... Um, yeah, you, you need dock workers to pump the water in for, for you for you to get away. They, they also had to um, unload all of the stores and everything else off the ship. Well, that, well, that makes sense. So. That makes sense again because if if you don't have the support of the water on the outside of the hull, then um, your ballast is probably going to do uh, rather rather nasty things. Um, now, it's perhaps a little bit unfortunate that right at the moment when the Shenandoah was, was hauled out of the water, not hauled out of the water, was put in dry dock. Um, now, um, the consul, uh, Blanchard, in Melbourne... This is the consul for the Union. For, for the for Union. The United States. Yes, yes. Now, now um, interestingly, there had been a consul for the United States, another person. Yes. And... Um, he lost his job uh, in the progress of the Civil War because his sympathies were not sufficiently union. Well, they, they weren't sufficiently union, and given, I, I believe, in fact, had some of the officers of the Shenandoah over for dinner, um, you can say for not, not sufficiently union was perhaps a euphemism. But that could not be said about Mr Blanchard uh, because he had been the, the editor of an abolitionist newspaper... Um, so, so he was um, back, uh, back in the states. Back in the states, and and back before the Civil War. So, so he he would have been um, absolutely irate when the Shenandoah came into port, and he did all that he could to um, to try and get the Shenandoah seized. Now, the first argument he raised. Now, apparently, there was a stern plate, which I'm very much assuming is a plate at the stern of the ship. Um, very, very good. Production there, <laughs> yes, right? um, yeah, um, that. Uh, while the ship's name had been changed to the Shenandoah, the stern plate apparently said "seeking." So, very possibly, it had been painted over, but you could still see "seeking" written underneath it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, so Blanchard apparently hired a, a boat to come and go and have a look at the stern, and Blanchard then petitioned the Victorian government uh, with the theory that um, it was an English ship, the Seeking, um, or as the age called it, the Notorious Seeking. Um, and so, therefore, um, it was breaking the laws of neutrality for it to have been uh, launched from an English port. And, and look, apparently the, the legalities of that um, do not support that argument because a ships can be sold on the high seas, and that's exactly what Waddell had done. Now, now the, perhaps the fact that Waddell had done this during at the Lost Desertus Islands um, indicated he had a few qualms about the legality of what he was he, doing. He also sold it to somebody who just happened to arrive in another ship, the Laurel, yes. which was filled, its hold was filled with cannons, guns, ammunition. Yes, but perfectly above board, sir, it's, um, uh, you know, uh, with the, the legalities. So Blanchard didn't get far with this. Where he, he tried, he got, had a lot more success, uh, was in basically actively trying to get the crew to desert, uh, which he did in Spike Milligan's famous phrase, by putting money in their hands. Yes, he was, uh, he was offering inducements for them to uh, jump ship. He also was taking affidavits from all of the, uh, the prisoners that had been landed as well. Yes. So Mrs. Nichols and uh, and the rest of them and they all they all recounted what had happened 
on the high seas before they come to Melbourne. And and um, this is again a, a very important point. Um, I think we've mentioned before um, that there was a um, an African American um, sailor on board, um, John John Williams, who had been. Um, he was the one that. Uh, Mr. Whittle kept triting up for various uh, infractions. Mr. Whittle kept triting him up for various infractions, uh, mind you. Uh, yeah, stealing a shirt, drunkenness, being cheeky. I think was one of them. Um, look, um, they they recruited him to be their 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 um, ship steward, I think, and, and cook. And um, it, it's fair to say that the poor man did did not have a, have a very nice time aboard the Shenandoah. And not surprisingly, uh, John Williams was one of the the sailors who who deserted and was one helped. The, one of the nineteen, I believe. I, I, uh, yes. Now, I'm going to do a direct quote from um, Angus Curry. Now, um, Angus spoke at the um, uh, the conference that we went to at uh, Williamstown uh, last uh, last Saturday, and um, he, yeah, unfortunately for us, he, he stole most of our best lines. Um, <laughs> so I look, I yeah, uh, when somebody's done a wonderful job, you ought to admit this. So I'm, I'm going to give a quotation from. Um, uh, Angus Curry, the officers of the CSN Shandoah, as page 157. Um, the central accusation levelled at the CSS Shenandoah was that it was enlisting seamen while in port. Oh, that's a definite breach of the uh, yes, that, neutrality laws. That's a paddling, yes. Yeah. Um, uh, it is symbolic that some of the most damaging ammunition for the United States Consul came from Lieutenant Whittle's nemesis, the black cook John Williams. Hardship had continued for this reluctant recruit in Melbourne, for Williams had been double-ironed and gagged for drunkenness and disorderly conduct only days after arriving. The cook had escaped from the cruiser on 6th of February by swimming ashore and seeking protection at the United States consulate. And given that um, that Blanchard, the consul, uh, was the previous editor of an abolitionist newspaper, I, I think he had gone to the right place and he showed... Um, uh, yeah, in, in Huffleberry Finn, of course, the, 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 the problem is always that, that Jim does nothing to, to earn his own freedom. It's all up to Huckleberry. Whereas I think uh, John Williams um, jumped ship, uh, he swam to shore, and he, he went and talked to exactly the right person. Yeah, he, he did knock on the correct door. I mean, if, he, if this had happened earlier and it had been the previous consul... He might have been chucked it, straight back. Yeah. So, so um, he, he, he chose very well. Now, in a sworn affidavit, and, and the fact that, that Williams gives a sworn affidavit in itself would have been very significant, but we'll get into that a bit later. Williams asserted that 15 to 20 recruits were concealed aboard the Confederate cruiser, three in ship's uniform. These accusations were reiterated in the testimonies of three other deserters. Wow. So, um... And and why was it significant that uh, he gave the affidavit? Well, um... Uh, there's no other way to say this, really, that um, in the South, where, of course, the Shenandoah's officers came from, the idea of a, uh, of a, of a black man in the parlance of the day giving evidence against white men would have white been... White officers. White officers would have been absolutely unheard of. Uh, and the fact that, that, that uh, in Australia, which no doubt had its own problem with racism, but that in Australia, uh, John Williams' uh, testimony was as good as any other man's, uh, what I think have been um, highly enraging to uh, to some of the, the southern officers. Yeah, absolutely. So we've got a situation. The yes. ship is now sitting on top of a dry dock. 
unable to go anywhere. Do you sit on top of Dry Dock's mob or are you inside? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, whatever the case, it's not on the water. No. It can't go anywhere. And uh, presumably, by the way, John Williams escaped by swimming ashore before... before, No, no, because that was on February the 6th. Because that would have been comedy gold (laughs) if he'd dived off and and gone clay into the the Dry Dock. Um, So we've got a situation. The, The ship is unable to go anywhere. A very, very serious accusation has been made about mm. uh, breaching the laws of neutrality, something that really can't be ignored. With uh, this information, Mr Blanchard, the union consul, has gone to the governor, Sir Charles Darling, with, with this evidence. And this puts Sir Charles Darling in an interesting situation. He's got to decide what to do. Well, um, what he did do, and uh, he's, he, um, he asked his police department uh, to investigate it, and um, they put a couple of, uh, of detectives on the case. And um, Yes, two top cops. We had Superintendent Littleton yes. and Inspector Beam of the Victorian Police. Oh, look, I, I could already see that these guys should have a breakout series. I, I see them as something like the Thompson twins, except perhaps slightly more competent. I think Inspector Beam's in a bowler, isn't he? Yeah, yes, Inspector Beam would be in a bowler, and Superintendent Littleton would be in a topper, and they would they would solve crimes on Melbourne's waterfront in the 19th century. Um, and anybody with money to, to make a TV series, um, please uh, contact us at shenandoahdownunder.com. Um, Okay, let, let, let's get out from that rabbit hole and go on. So to they, really they turned up down at the, the government slip with a magistrate's warrant, a search warrant, saying yes. that they wanted to come on board and look for these deserters. And in particular, yes, um, they'd been given the name of one of these deserters. One yes, Charlie or Charlie the Cook. Yes. It, it appears that the rest of the deserters didn't have names, or maybe John Williams and the others didn't know what their names were, or I suspect they may have been known as, you know, John Smith. Well, well, some sources say um, that Charlie was Chinese. Um, um, oh. Angus Curry doesn't make anything of it, so that might be something of a, of a, of a furphy. Um, but, of course, if, if it's Charlie's a Chinese cook, then that would make him that much more readily identifiable. Except uh, I think the argument was that this Charlie was an Englishman, which, by virtue of being in the colony of Victoria, is someone from Victoria. OK. Uh, and that is breaching the laws of neutrality. Well, even, that, 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 even more than taking on somebody from anywhere else. OK. okay. In, in any case, uh, they turned up at the ship... And uh, Captain Waddell was actually not there at the time when they first came, and they were refused entry. On well, well, that, that that's um, an absolute gimme for, for that was Lieutenant Grimble who did that, and, right. and yes, all, all he had to do was be to be a jobs worth there. He just had to say no gov, or sorry, in the southern equivalent, no gov. That's more than my jobs worth. Um, I, I can't let you on board till the governor gets back. That, that wasn't terribly southern, but if you can translate it in your heads. Uh, yeah. yeah, so they pretty much just went away after that. They, yeah. they, they didn't go on board, but they'd been told that uh, this was going to happen. Um, then, later, uh, when Waddell had returned, they came back and again presented the warrant and said, we want to come on board and search the ship for these uh, so-called 
deserters. And what did Captain Waddell say at this point? Well, um, it's interesting. Um, uh, there are various points uh, where Captain Waddell uh, very much uh, trades on being a, a southern a southern captain. And um, uh, so uh, Waddell told the police officer, and um, I've got all the way from page 157. I assume, by the way, he patted Grimble on the back when he came <laughs> yeah. back and said, you yeah, know, well done. Well done. Uh, now, again, we've got all the way from page 157 of Angus Curry uh, to 159. But um, he told the con- police officer... It was only by courtesy that he had been allowed on board that he considered a great slight being put upon him by sending to the ship with a warrant. He said that he thought his word should be taken in preference to that of men who had probably deserted from the ship and I had been put up to annoy him by the American consul. He said if I took one man, I might come afterwards and take 15 or 20. Now, that is um, Waddell standing on his word as a southern gentleman. uh, And he's using a technique there that we call lying in in that, you know, uh, in fact, they have been caught red-handed recruiting um, foreign seamen and... um, Oh, and and, and Victorian seamen or or Englishmen as well. Yes, well, look, again, I I think the fact that that Charlie might might have been Chinese... um, if he, if he was recruited from an English port, that was still a violation yes, of English yes. neutrality. One thing uh, Waddell did, he, had, he did have a card to play. Unfortunately, John Williams in his affidavit said three of these new recruits were given Confederate uniforms. And Waddell pointed out that that could hardly be so. I'm actually reading from uh, Waddell's own memoirs yep. here. That, uh that could hardly be so because there were no such uniforms provided. And that does appear to be the case, that the uh, officers may have had these uh, Confederate uniforms, which, if you remember in early episodes, they were all complaining vociferously about. That they, that they, that they took the dirt terribly. They yes. took the dirt terribly. They were blue, weren't they? They weren't actually grey, they were blue. I, no, I, I, sorry, I, I thought they were grey, because Whittle, Whittle makes, makes the point that, that grey shows the dirt. Oh, that's right, yeah. Okay, no, I think it was, yes, the old Navy yes. before the... The before US Navy, the, but... The unfortunate... Uh, yes, unfortunate ...disagreement events. they were in uh, was blue, but this was grey, yes. Anyway, the crew weren't given uh, uniforms, and I think he probably could have pointed out to the uh, mm, mm. the policemen, you know, any of the crew that were there holy stoning the deck or practising their swearing that none of these guys are wearing uniforms. So that would, ex- would have actually helped uh, the argument. Um, so he refused the search, and... The the other reason that he gave, and this is again from his memoirs, is first the well-known doctrine that a vessel of war is part of the territory of the country to which she belongs. Thus, thus, reasoning from analogy, a British ship of war would not permit the civil authorities of a foreign port to search her. And in the well-known case of Franz Mueller, the murderer of Mr. Briggs. We'll have to look up that one. We'll have to look up that one, yes. So closely was this practice adhered to that the British constables were not allowed to effect the arrest which was done by American policemen. So he was able to say, look, there are clear cases in the past where... uh, Although I have to say, I I always find the phrase reasoning from analogy means I'm making this stuff up. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so... He more or less said, you ain't searching this ship, this is uh, Confederate territory, and you're going to have to take my uh, my word as an officer. Um, now, now um, how did Governor Darling react to that? Well, what he did was, he said, 
I will arrange for the ship to be searched by um, two of my lieutenants and the master of an ar- master of arms, like his own crew. We're going to do the search. His own officers. We're going to do the search. Sorry, w- Waddell said that. Not yes. Not not darling. No. Okay. Yeah, Waddell yes. said that. So uh, they went off and did the search, and what a surprise! They came back and said they thoroughly searched the vessel and found no strangers. They even said that they examined the coal bunker. Very good. Um, so, the police officers more or less left because they weren't going to get any further satisfaction. But we've now got a situation because Governor Darling was not convinced that... Uh, Wasn't this, he? This By this... Sincere... <laughs> Oh dear, you'd always think a, you know, Governor Darling wouldn't think a fox was an appropriate person to guard a hen house, but there, there you go. So, um, this was now about sundown, and when they looked out, they noticed that all the workmen in the government slip had finished work and had been replaced by a whole lot of policemen. And in yes. fact, policemen... Bearing arms. Yes. Um, again, one of the things you, you do have to realise about Victoria in this stage is um, uh, there are a, a lot of uh, bushrangers. Uh, because there are a lot of gold in the colony, there are also a lot of criminals um, who wanted to steal that gold. And uh, so, yes, um, a, a heavily armed police force was required to, uh, to, 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 to deal with that. And so, uh, how many policemen were there? Well... Depending on which journal you read, well, let's start with the, the, the reality. How, how many policemen? Uh, apparently, according to Angus Curry, there were about fifty policemen that yes. come down to the government slip. But I believe um, Dr. Lining, in his memoirs, claimed there were two hundred. Well, don't don't just steal my thunder, thank you very much. Uh, yes, uh, Curry actually quotes uh, Lining's diary. Apparently, Lining was the only one of the Confederates who actually mentioned this incident in their diary, uh, possibly because um, they they felt somewhat humiliated and ashamed. So um, uh, what Lining said was, um, at about 5.30pm, a body of about 200 policemen. So um, he's obviously inflating the numbers to to make himself feel a bit better. Um, Assisted by a body of the Royal Artillery. Now, again, that's more of an outright Untruth, because that's, that's hyperbole. That's hyperbole. The the Royal Artillery were um, ordered to prepare to go down to the slip, but then at some point, I believe people worked out that it, it's on a dry dock, so fifty policemen with guns will be more than sufficient. So the artillery never actually made it to Williamstown. That would also be a dramatic escalation of uh, the situation. Yeah, yeah, once you've got soldiers, yes. Uh, well, you know, when you've got police, however because armed, it's a civil matter. Because the artillery at this stage were on... There were two um, barges with naval guns on them, with cannons oh. on them. And I guess it might have been a bit of an effort to get them into place. But I think once you start doing that, you are more or less saying to the uh, warship that things are getting pretty serious. And I think they also probably dawned on them, hang on, the ship also has cannon on it, and cannon can fire both yeah. ways. Well, yes, yes. So the, the the order was rescinded, so the artillery didn't come out after yep. all, which I think 
for everyone involved was probably a good thing. Probably a very good thing. So um, continuing uh, Dr. Lining's quote, uh, assisted by a body of the Royal Artillery, took possession of the slip and the wharves on each side of us while the council gave orders that no more work should be done by the workmen on board or on the propeller. I don't know that I ever felt more humiliated in all my life as when I saw policemen on each side of the ship with guns in their hands keeping guard over us while we lay perfectly helpless on the slip, unable to move or even make the slightest resistance, in fact helpless. Everybody seemed to share this feelings, even the men, and a general wish was expressed to resist if possible. Well, it's kind of glad it didn't come to that because it would not have been possible to to resist. Or sail away. Or sail away, yes, yes. So... um so a, a dramatic, a dramatic day. Um, so we've got a bit of a, um, a well, it's not a Mexican standoff because we're in the colony of Victoria, <laughs> but we've got a Victorian standoff. And what's going to happen? So at this stage, I'd say the Union Consul must be pretty feeling pretty chipper and pretty happy about this. Uh, he would have thought he'd done a very good day's work. Yes, yes. So no further work is being done on the ship. Although uh, apparently uh, the um, the workmen who were um, working on the engine because that was inside the ship apparently they they had some southern sympathies or perhaps they just liked being paid um so they continued work apparently oh okay all right so they they, they kept on kept on going inside um so we're, we're at, a, at a bit of an impasse and Waddell's in a bit of a sticky situation here what happens next well now um Two, two things. Two things. Um, One is, that night, some people pop over the side. Some people pop over the side. I believe there, there were four of them. And um, they jump into a boat. And um, they they row to shore. And um, with um, with the police being, being canny people, somebody was would have been set to watch if anybody tried to leave the boat. And uh, the boat was, was intercepted. And who should happen to be on that boat but a, a cook called Charlie? Well, a, a cook called Charlie, yes. <laughs> Who would have thunk it? Yeah, I believe that, um, well, if it was still dry dock, they must have jumped uh, over then, grabbed a, a rowboat or something and and tried to hightail it away. And hi- I think they tried to hide in the, the, the scrub, didn't yes. they? Yes, well, the, the, well, yeah, they, 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 there's... But there were just way too many police down there at this at this point. Well, yeah. yeah. So four of them were actually arrested, yep. including the one Charlie, and they were taken off and uh, and put before a magistrate and uh, bailed for fifty pounds. And I think fifty pounds would probably have been a year's salary in those days. It was a, it was a quite significant so amount of money. That's a pretty serious situation. But uh, any court cases and things involving them didn't happen until uh, after the Shenandoah leaves. So yes. Uh, obviously, they didn't really want to go there at this stage. And the other thing that happened was uh, Waddell complained vociferously to uh, the governor. Yep. And in the end, uh, gave him an ultimatum. Hmm. Uh, the ultimatum being that uh, if there were to be any more searches of his ship, he would basically surrender the ship he would remove his crew from it. They would get onto the next uh, steam packet to England, and the government of Victoria would be left with the Shenandoah on on its dry dock. 
and they'd be complaining uh, vociferously directly to the British government directly about to the British this government violation. Now, I, I actually think this was um, given that that Waddell's Southern Gentleman Bluff had kind of been called, and he kind of been proven to be a liar. Um, uh, I think actually this was he, he doubled down, and I actually think it's a magnificent double down bluff because the the last thing Governor Darling wanted was for you know to be left with the Shenandoah on his hands potentially forever. So basically, um, you, you get the impression that you know words words were exchanged. Uh, a chap had a word with a chap, and. Waddell was encouraged in the nicest possible way, or perhaps even not a terribly nice way, to get out of Dodge, a.k.a. to get out of Melbourne. So um, the the orders were given that um, the the Shenandoah would be uh, able to leave. Able to have the repairs finished. Finished, yes, and and that would take a couple of days. But after that, they were more than than welcome to make their departure. So... uh what do you? What was? What do you think? Do you think they told Charlie and a couple of the others to to hightail it? Was the the plan then just to avoid any embarrassment by yeah, yes, rid of I, I think I Charlie think Charlie himself. I think I think Charlie Charlie and presumably those few others had, had got it had got too hot for them on the Shenandoah. So I think yes, they were probably told it's time to take one for the team again. Probably money changed hands and uh, and off they went. Now. Um, so that brings us up to uh, the 17th, 17th of February. Yes. So the ship was uh, allowed to be... The, the repairs were finished. The stores were put back on board the ship. And uh, from reading the journals, I think they did a remarkably haphazard and crap job of getting everything back on board, probably because they wanted to do it in a real hurry. Now, now look, we, we, we run way over time, but this has been a very big episode, and we haven't even really covered the conference, which I think we're going to have to do perhaps next time. But um, there's one more thing I want to say, which was that on February the 16th, midshipman Oris Brown and John Mason, the two midshipmen aboard the Shenandoah, were sent out into the wilds of Williamtown to retrieve assistant surgeon Francis McNulty, who had apparently gone on something of a bender, and to retrieve him, uh, and violence in the apprehension of Francis McNulty was approved. (laughs) Anyway, Michael, I I, I think we're going to have to stop here. We're going to have to leave the departure of the Shenandoah for this week. Um, Yeah, we've, 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 we've... Run way over time already, but I think this has been uh, was a ter- terrifically exciting um, sequence of events. And so it remains just to say that this has been um, Shenandoah Down Under or Confederate Pirates Save the Whales with Robin Mob, Robert Love, and Michael O'Brien. I'm Rob. And I'm Mob and Tally Ho. Tally Ho and Ahoy.